You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. あ、私はいつもあなたのそばです。うん、わかりますよ、ジャンヌ。あなたの、あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あなたの。あ
So the first time I saw it was when I used to do my old blog, The Gore Splattered Corner, and I got it into my head I was going to review every single film made about witchcraft because I have these big ideas that don't ever turn into anything. (laughs) I watched a lot of films and I came across that. This was before The Resurgence because it's recently had a restoration just totally by accident. It just blew me away, if I'm honest. I say that about every film I come on here to talk about, but it did. It was just... Unlike as far as things about witchcraft go, which I have a particular interest in, very kind of feminist, very sex positive, just totally not what I expected. I thought it was just a weird animation thing, you know, and it would just be a bit saucy. Just totally, you know, and I've been a strong advocate for the film ever since. How about you, Heather? It's funny, at the first time I encountered uh, Belladonna's sadness was actually thanks to Kat's article <laughs> that she wrote uh, for Diabolique. Because I, I was familiar with the film before reading her piece, but um, I'm, I've always been very like picky with animation films in particular, and I'm not definitely the strongest versed in uh, Japanese animation films especially. But reading her piece, I was like, okay, I have to see this. And so I went out, I actually bought it sight unseen, and was completely blown away. It's everything that that a film can reward you with, because it's visually stunning. But there's a lot of subversiveness, there's a lot of emotional meat to it. And uh, I think it's absolutely a masterpiece. Yeah, this was a first time watch for me. I had read about this film for a while. And kind of like you, Heather, I bought it sight unseen and was just also, you know, pulling back the covers a little bit on the podcast a few years ago. Somebody was like, you really don't cover very many animated films. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. I don't. And I especially kind of like you again, Heather, I don't know that much about Japanese animation. So we covered Akira a couple of years ago, I guess it was. And. I proceeded to look into other Japanese animated stuff, not a whole lot, but I just kept hearing about Belladonna and I was like, ah, I really want to see this. So finally pretty much just said, I need to make an episode so that I can actually sit down and watch this, give myself an excuse in order to learn more about this. And yeah, I wasn't disappointed whatsoever. It's such a rewarding film. And I, I definitely think, cause I think a lot of Americans in particular and Westerners have this view of Japanese animation either being everything's either going to be Sailor Moon or schoolgirls getting sexually assaulted by identical monsters. <laughs> and both of those are elements in, in, that, in that genre. But Belladonna is unlike any animated film from any country. It really is. It's completely its own film. I was really surprised that this is set in medieval France. So it's completely different. You know, even though there are very many Japanese things to it, I mean, all the language, of course, is in Japanese, but the setting dictates some of the content as far as that goes. But then you have these Japanese elements like that everything goes from left to right instead of right to left. And even our first shot is just this kind of line drawing or just a line, really. Uh, and we follow that from left to right, much like you know the language goes for them. And so it gives 
at least to me as a Westerner, it gives it this kind of odd flavor where we're moving the opposite way that I would think that we would move. So even from the beginning, it's kind of keeping me off balance a little bit. I don't know a whole lot about Japanese animation, and I wouldn't say I was a massive animation fan in that I enjoy animated films, but it's something that I've never really kind of pursued. The little that I do know, there is that sort of pocket around the early 70s where you had a lot of people experimenting with animation for more adult films. So Fantastic Planet is kind of comparable. But the most interesting thing to me, like you said, Mike, is is, is even though it's clearly Japanese, it's got this very strange European sort of overtone um and i'm used to anime like i in the 90s and that i was just heavily i was watching pokemon and the (laughs) with my kids but really into sort of later anime and stuff and it wasn't like anything that i was used to from from that yeah it's kind of avant-garde and got a very sort of european art house tone to it if that makes sense, just with these other little touches, like the, like you said, the direction of the movement and things like that, that throw you off a bit. But really interesting from that perspective. When I first watched it, I, there was no nothing to read about. It was just something I can come across online completely accidentally, and so I just really wasn't expecting that, like the medieval setting and the fact that it's... um, And I didn't know this at the time until I started writing that piece that you mentioned, Heather, the Michelet influence. Uh, That was something I found later on. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really is one of a kind. I'm not sure you can even talk about it in that whole Japanese animation sphere because it just doesn't seem to fit with anything else. If anybody like listening to this who hasn't seen even a trailer for this film, there's a lot of like watercolors and like sort of ink, a lot of black ink drawings. It's like there's nothing really. Some panels are not even animated in a technical sense. Like it's like it's kind of a still panel with like the camera moving. But it's so gosh, there's like so much beautiful imagery. Even like when you're seeing really horrific things in this film, and you will. It's so beautifully done. It's like you could take any frame from this movie and make it a painting. Make it, you know, just put it on your wall. And and that appealed to me because I think part of the reason why I've never gotten hugely into animation films is that with to me, with animation, if I don't like how something is drawn, if it doesn't appeal to me visually or aesthetically, then I probably I don't want to really watch it. But that was definitely not the case. It kind of reminds me of um, the early Barofchek stuff as well, though. Because he does that sort of static animation and just collages and stuff. Not totally in his style, because it's got its own style, but it definitely seems to connect more to that than what I'd associate anime. Yeah, I like that. I think Yamamoto in an interview was saying that he was basing some of this on puppet theater. There's the long tradition of Japanese puppet theater, so you have the whole idea of these puppets where their mouths don't move. So there is not a whole lot, if any, scenes in Belladonna where we have what they call in the business lip flap. We don't have any of that. It is 
still frames so much of the time. And then we hear the actors speaking. It's almost like a radio play, I suppose, but with images, with still images. And then the camera moving across things or the, the frames moving past the camera. I'm, I imagine that it was camera over the frames, but that's how we get a lot of our motion. Then we do get actual animated sequences and those are done in so many different styles. There's one sequence about midway through where it just turns into this real head trippy. I can imagine just being on acid or really potent drugs of some kind watching this and like tripping out in the, like the, in the early seventies to this. There's so many different things. And then Heather, you brought up the watercolors and yeah, it just the, the style of these drawings and that you can see or the paintings and you can see the actual brush strokes on these. And there are so many just absolutely gorgeous elements to this. And then you get, I love, I love the long panels that we get where we are panning across this and we are getting told these stories and we have these breaks in the panel like we'll have the villagers looking to the right and then the villagers looking to the left and it basically is taking us into the next part of the story just incredible storytelling with the way that this movie is made i don't know if if you guys kind of thought this too but at what at one point later on in the film like where there's a shot of Sheen dancing, and it almost, I know it wasn't technically rotoscoped, but the way it was, the way the motion was kind of done, it reminded me of some of Bakshi's. And that's the only comparison I'd ever make about anything in this film to Ralph Bakshi's work. The way, I don't know, it's just, it looked kind of almost like pseudo rotoscoped, I guess, because not technically rotoscoped, but, uh, but that's a, a technique I actually have always really liked in animation. I'd much rather see rotoscoping than CGI. It's like Mike said, though, almost from scene to scene, the style isn't consistent. As you move along, you know, one minute you're in this sort of psychedelic orgy, which is a bit like those Sesame Street animations, but with porn. You know, those 70s ones when they do the numbers and stuff on the pinball machine. Everything <laughs> kind of reminded me of that. And just every scene seems to be like inspired by by something else. And in, in anything else, that possibly wouldn't work. It would just become too overwhelming. But for some reason, it just seems to make perfect sense with this film. It, it really does. And that's, that's such a beautiful point. Because, yeah, I mean, at one point you you have a sequence where it's almost like Peter Max style where it's just all these like almost like kind of western iconic like pop culture iconic iconography and then and then at one point which is uh not to jump too far but one of my absolute favorite visuals in this film is you see jean as a red-faced sphinx when i first saw that my jaw just dropped it's like oh my god and then like when she kind of lifts up and outstretches her arms it completely made me think of kenneth anger as the as the magus in a invocation of my demon brother because he does the same exact motion yeah. it's totally seems to 
book tie into that whole, which I don't really know whether this was ever much of a thing in Japan, but if you think the early 70s, late 60s, you had that whole kind of explosion of occult culture that came out of counterculture. And I don't know if that was part of Japanese culture, but it seems to vibe in with that in more of an American and a British thing. You had a kind of resurrection of, you know, almost like at the end of the fin de siècle, which was when Michelet was writing. You basically had a counterculture there where a lot of people left the church and they got into different versions of occult practice. You know, you had the golden dawn around that time Alistair Crowley came out of that you know you had this whole thing at the end of the century Michelet wasn't part of that but he observed that he knew those people that were hanging around in Paris at the time very decadent sort of culture they were taking a lot of drugs and there's a parallel to that at the end of the 60s that came out in America with Anton Nevey in I think it was 66 they founded the Church of Satan and we had our own British weird version of it over here which wasn't as I guess decadent you know I'd like to know really whether I should have actually researched this on some level whether that resonated over in Asia as well because it seems to really gel with that kind of thing that was going on where all of the sudden the devil became like a figure for the rebellion like an, like an anarchist, and it's kind of pro-demonism and pro-occultism and against the old traditions. It seems a strange thing to come out of Japan, so I, I'd like to know how much of that sort of culture crossed over. Japan's always had that weird relationship with Christianity. Like even looking, you know, of course I base everything that I know on movies and looking at things like the Sleepy Eyes of Death films, the Ichikawa Raizo series, and that the villains in that are uh, missionaries that come over and are basically torturing people so that they accept God into their lives. So there's always that weird, we have imposed western religion onto an eastern culture and there's that very uneasy relationship that they have and i think like they will take things that they might let in this listen we use the word they like i'm completely being this cultural overlord but <laughs> from what i understand the japanese will take what they want if they're not like really adopting fully the whole christian dogma there might be things that they want to take and be like yeah yeah we'll we'll you know do that i mean Japan is an interesting culture for me in that, like, Shintoism, Buddhism, you know, there are other branches of religion that are there, but it seems kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do what we want. We'll kind of, like, take and pick and choose what we want to do from these different religions. I'm sure there are some very devout Christians, yada, yada, but, you know, those, those people are everywhere, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that Christian context really interests me because I – Talking of Shinto and Buddhism, if you look at Japanese genre film, like classic Japanese genre film, it takes place in a landscape where it's sort of do with Buddhist and Shinto traditions. It's a bit more ambiguous than our sort of haunted house films. So the relationship with death in Japan is a lot different to ours and therefore their ghosts are completely different and they don't seem to have this i'm saying they now as well (laughs) the japanese don't seem to have this same sort of 
black and white thing that we have in the West. I guess that's, you know, when I'm talking about the occult, why it seems like more of a Western thing, because it's all about God and the devil, isn't it? But when you look at Japan, they have Shinto tradition, they have various different gods and, and things. If you look at the cinema, so it's it's strange to see that the the use of Christianity because obviously it has a very specific context to us in the West. How what that would have meant culturally in Japan, though? Well, and we are setting this in the Middle Ages where religion is just absolutely cuckoo in Europe at the moment. So. Not that religion has gone much past superstition since then, but we are dealing with a lot of superstition. And this thing that we even talked about recently on the uh, Daughters of Darkness episode, Kat, where it's the whole idea of when a woman finds her own power, she's accused of witchcraft and she's accused of these horrible things. And that is the exact same thing that's happening to Jean in this movie. And the whole story is her basically finding herself taking control of her life, having all of these awful things happen to her along the way. And then she surprised. I think she's accused of witchcraft several times through this film and spoilers. She's burned at the stake at the end of the movie. Burned at the stake that's shaped like a crucifix. That was something that really, really appealed to me as about this movie is because it's, it's, you know, if you read like a simple plot description online about it, it's basically just, okay, this, this, you know, we see Jean, who's this virgin bride, get basically gang raped by, you know, uh, not only by the, uh, the overlord, the, you know, the king baron type in the film, but it also looks like she's gang raped by others. Like, it's just like, it's just very brutal and it's very ugly. And, her life, her husband, Jean, like, or John, you know, she comes home and he's just like, oh, let's just act like, you know, let's just forget this happened. Let's start now, which I mean, is convenient for anybody to tell that to a rape victim. Saying that is not going to certainly erase anybody's physical or emotional trauma. But then he, at one point, looks like he's about to strangle her. So this poor girl, all of a sudden, this little devil pops up. And he's adorable, but he kind of looks like a dick. <laughs> he's like, you're like, he's cute. Wait, I know what you are, sir. <laughs> and, but, it, you know, and like typical Westerner, you think, oh, that's evil. The devil's bad, right? Most of, you know, anybody that was raised around Christianity or within it, yeah, it's very kind of like, yeah, Satan's bad. God's good. But as the film progresses, like Satan's nicer to her than anybody, and certainly any of the humans, human males in this film. And you, at one point I was like, yeah, go with the devil. <laughs> I think that's the thing about it, though. And the one thing I've always loved about Japanese genre film, although I, I guess you could call this genre, couldn't you? It kind of feel, falls into that. Is it's when you compare it to the Western stuff from the same period, it's slightly more sophisticated a bit more ambiguous when it, you know, morally, and there's not really any black and white. Whereas the the Western stuff tends to be, you know, good versus evil. You get some transgression in there. But with Japanese genre film, it's often far more complicated than that. And this one, with all the witchcraft films that I watched, and there were hundreds, was one that really stood out in my mind. There's a guy, I don't know if you guys have heard of him, Perfax Naud. Not familiar to me. Right. He he wrote this book a couple of years ago, 
which is brilliant and I recommend it to everyone, called Satanic Feminism. What he did was he basically tracked sort of women in the church going back to, you know, way back when and then up until the 1800s when you had this rise of occult societies looking at how women had traditionally been excluded by the church and disempowered and they weren't allowed to own anything and blah 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 you know what we were talking about last time and when occult societies came along you had people like Madame Blavatsky formed her own society the theosophical society in the late 1800s for the first time you had a spirituality where women had power you know they could be priestesses they they could run their own foundations and so he termed this satanic feminism become like going to the dark side i suppose going to the devil became an empowering thing for women and i know when that that film, The Vivitch, <laughs> came out in 2015. People were hailing it as a feminist masterpiece. Oh, it's got this, you know, satanic feminist message. And I'd seen Belladonna of Sadness at that point and was just fucking fuming because I was like, you know, you get better in a dress in The Vivitch. You know, in Belladonna of Sadness, you get your own orgy, you get loads of money you get sex, you get like a demon friend. And so uh, it seemed a bit un- over- underwhelming to me, the Vivitch. Uh, but it's one of the first film that I really saw that has that satanic feminist message. And I didn't know about satanic feminism. That It's only reading Perfect Snell's brilliant book that kind of gives it a framework that I started to realise, yes, this is why I like this. This is why... I responded to it. He doesn't talk about that film specifically. It's more of a historical thing. But it fits into that perfectly. The fact that, you know, under the church, Jean is, like, oppressed. Even her husband won't stand up for her. And when she goes over to the devil, she acquires this power. And that power is terrifying to the people in the church. I also found it interesting that the devil says... I have always been in you. I am there. Like he is waiting and not to say he as in a a gender, you know, even though he is gendered in this film, it, the power has always been in her, in her and just waiting to come out. And she, you know, it takes a while for her to finally own up to it and, and hold on to it. But, and it's very scary as it has to be if you are being oppressed and you find that you have this power in yourself. And then the way that she finally kind of comes to it and that she comes to it sexually is, is a really fantastic thing that she is basically liberating herself sexually with you know, the help of her little phallic friend. And I have to say, I mean, Tatsuya Nakadai, he has come up on this podcast several times, especially when Chris Stashu had me on um, a whole series of samurai films. He was, he's the really wolfish character in uh, Yojimbo. He's the main baddie in Sanjuro, and he's the lead character in Harakiri. This guy is fantastic, and I cannot say enough good things about him. So having him as this voice, and I love the way that he plays it, so sweet and coy at the beginning when he's this little phallus that's there with her, and then when he 
gains when he gains his own power and he gets taller and taller and bigger throughout this entire movie and towards the end when he's just this you know, muscle man with this great phallic head to him, and he's got the big voice, and he's just you know really commanding the everything that's going on. It's just like, wow, this guy can really bring it. He's brilliant. The devil character is just wonderful. And just to go back to what you were saying about the sexuality, I think that's what makes it so powerful, just from a like a feminist perspective. Because in order to be free, she has to shed herself of all that guilt and oppression. And, you know, it's fine for her to be raped, but she can't own her sexuality. And her, and her power comes from that. It comes from in, inside herself. It reminds me of this uh, pagan poem, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's all to do with, like, you know, the idea is you don't worship the god, you become the god. And that God is always within you. And there's a line in this poem that says, you know, know that to find me, you need to stop looking and look within yourself. And it's that line when he's like, I've always been here. It, it seems to tie to that very specific, I guess, a neo-pagan tradition, which is really interesting. It's all about female sexuality. That frightens them more than anything else because that's how they control her. And, I'm trying to think in just in witchcraft films. I mean, you do have some that, that have feminist connotations and that started to change, you know, with things like Witches of Eastwick and later on, you know, the witch became a more positive feminist icon, things like the craft. But I really can't think of anything that's comparable to that amount of power in terms of the witch film. There's always something there, you know, that kind of derails it. But not here. Kat, you have the best quote about the Vivitch. Oh, the Vivitch. <laughs> yeah, where your your main complaint was that they're not living deliciously yeah. enough. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> and there's definitely a lot of delicious living oh, in Belladonna. So much. <laughs> That's the name of my article that Heather quoted. It's called The Art of Living Deliciously, is it? Something I really loved about this film, speaking to the whole thing with the devil, is, and this might be a weird comparison, but this makes sense to me to the point where I, I may end up doing an article comparing these two films at some point, is like Ken Russell's The Devils. You know, we have the devil in Belladonna, but we see actions and we see, like, who is really evil in this universe? It's not the devil. The devil is, is a force that has given her power. When she becomes, you know, basically kind of his wife and she, you know, and at first you're like, okay, she's going to go on a completely blood soaked revenge path. Like that's what you would think would happen. No. And instead she uses her powers to heal people, to heal the villagers, to empower them. That's when she becomes even more of a threat because anybody that's your overlord, whether it's government or organized religion, they don't, they don't want their people having free will. They don't want them having independent power because then that robs them of their power. If, 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 you know, if the common person doesn't need them. And in the devils, to me, that was very much similar. The real devils weren't the, the nuns or Oliver Reed's character. The real devils were the government and the church. So the original text, the Miche text, which the sorcerer, uh, basically it's like a collection of tales about medieval witchcraft and different witchcraft. And it's a bit, 
it's dense. It's hard to read. Like Michelet was writing in the 1800s. It's translated from French. You've basically got all these different stories in there. And one of them is the Devils of Ludon or Loudon, as I always used to call them <laughs> recently, which is what Ken Russell's was based on. But interestingly, the story of Jean in Michelet's The Sorcerer is just this different it's a different part of the book. It's a completely different story. It's not even connected to Lou Don. So it's interesting you make that connection because there is, it's totally, it's that same sort of avant-garde thing. And yeah, to, and again, a very Western thing. Oh man, see, and I need to, I, I tried to, I started reading The Sorcerer earlier this week, but I didn't get very far into it. No, me neither. It is really heavy going. It's, it's, worthwhile reading but it's the sort of book it takes you a long time to chew through it because there's so many different stories going on and it kind of i don't know if the version i've got like a translated kindle version i don't know how good that translation sometimes it can just be the translation but i did i had to read it a few times because i found myself getting lost as it moves from story to story Without any sort of, like, I'd be reading this and then it's on to something else. And, you know, it's a bit like that. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, but Michelet is a really interesting figure because he was, he, he's often called like feminist now, but he wasn't particularly that fat. So he believed that women should be educated, which was a major big thing in the 1800s. He was a historian. He wrote all these books on the history of France. He hung out with all those cool guys in the Parisian fin de siècle, you know, like Debussy and the occultists, like Huisman and that. He was kind of on that scene, but like as a, a observer. So he, he would write things that observed the cultural mores of the time. He believed heavily in women having education, which seems incredibly feminist, <laughs> but... When you look at why, and he probably was for his time, what he really wanted was, you know, women to be educated so they'd make better wives. So that's where the feminism stops with Michelet. Um, I think for his time, he was, you know, very forward thinking because education for women was a big thing then. You know, they were, people were fighting for it. Um, and he wanted women to be intellectual equals to their husband, but, but it was still very much in this framework of being married. He was using witchcraft, though, to kind of comment on the class differences. He believed that witchcraft in those times, in those feudal times, was like a response to this very oppressive thing where, you know, the serfs were less than human, they were out working on the land, and they were owned by the landowner or the the guy in this film what are we calling him the the baron or whatever he is the baron yeah yeah because he seems like a king but he's not the king of france so yeah i think they refer to him as the baron like a feudal lord isn't he and he so michelet saw witchcraft as an act of rebellion and resistance that like after dark when the masters had gone home these serfs would go out and they'd have witchcraft rituals and parties and bacchanalia and you know that was their thing that was their way of fighting back so some of that transfers into belladonna like that sentiment gene becoming associated with the devil is a form of resistance it's a form of rebellion she's not a power hungry greedy person 
That's not her bag. And when she does get, like Heather said, when she gets that power, she uses it to help people. Well, not everybody, but she uses it to help. She uses it to heal. And so it's like a more of a rebellious thing, which is wonderful. And we should talk about the character design of the Baron as well, because the devil, even though he's the, the cute little phallus at the beginning and kind of a little bit more intimidating, he is not the nightmare fuel that the Baron is with those looks like three bones sticking out of his head and that skull-like you know, visage. It's like, what the hell is going on? He is the most demonic character in this entire film. It's, I mean, it's got like almost sort of like this, it's more aesthetically beautiful, of course, but it's, it's like Skeletor, basically, yeah. from He-Man. And, th- and that's just another kind of really smart touch. Uh, also, like at one point in the film, you notice a character, I believe it's his wife, says, you know, what Belladonna or what Jean's doing is a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against you, as if God equals the Baron. And that, which is something that's, I mean, you think about it, how things are right now, like nothing ever changes really that much in history. It's like you have people that are fundamentalist Christians in the States that say they love Jesus, but they'll listen to Donald Trump before they'll listen to anything that you know Christ actually taught. And you, know, you go throughout history and see that's the case. And that's always the most dangerous thing. I mean, you should never make another man a god. Well, I think it's because it's, it's more than relevant now with what's happening in the States. When you look at how they treat Jean and she's basically at the beginning, it's a bit like Braveheart, isn't it? The women are given to the Lord on their wedding night. I was thinking Caligula. Yeah, that kind of thing. You know, your property of this baron and so he gets first dibs. But it is kind of that, isn't it? Like, now we seem to be reverting back to that, these big power figures who use the church to justify what they're doing, the fact that women are losing more and more of their autonomy. For a film that was made, what, getting on for 50 years ago now, the fact that it's still relevant is quite shocking. It's it's quite it's very sad, but it, it's something where I'm like, well, this is you know that's why art's always so important because it's you can watch a film like this and get like a really good insight into into real life as psychedelic and as ethereal at times as this movie is. The message is on point. I mean, you think about like the deeds of the Baron are far worse than anything that Gene or even the devil does. Like, but yet they say, oh no, we can't, we don't want this evil. But meanwhile, they're, you know, gang raping women. They're letting their, their people be, you know, basically starved to death. They don't care. It's all about money. It's all about power. They send their sons to, to some war that's not needed. And, you know, I think about what's going on right now is we have people saying, you know, they would rather condemn you know, a girl that's, you know, wants an abortion because she's been raped instead of condemning the rapist. You know, that's actively happening right now. Not to get preachy, because I know, Mike, you, you apparently the show is I know, gotten- I was going to say, we're verging on being a bit too liberal. I think we better talk was- about the tits, because we're getting a bit too liberal and a bit too political now. <laughs> there are lots of boobies in this movie. Yeah. Very, very pretty boobies. Lovely, the loveliest boobies, right? (laughs) Talk about relevant, the whole idea of, so Jean 
you mentioned that she cures the village because we've got the black plague that shows up at one point. And then when she, she cures them with an extract from Belladonna, which I find to be fascinating because it's supposed to be a poison, but she's able to basically transmute it into here. I'm getting into Dune territory. She's able to transmute it into the water of life. <laughs> But that she's helping out the people of the village. There's a, a montage where the Baron and, and the lady are talking to these villagers and basically trying to dig up dirt on Jean. And they go through and they speak to three different villagers of memory serves. But the one that really stands out for me is the middle woman who it talks about how her husband wants to have sex with her all the time. And she seems to enjoy sex, but they cannot afford to have any more children. So basically Jean has helped her out somehow with a contraception. And the woman is like, I know it's a sin to enjoy sex, but if that's the case, then send me to the devil. And I just love that Jean is there providing basically free women's health care <laughs> to yeah. the villagers. She's the Planned Parenthood of this village. Yeah, she's brilliant. She is such an empowering figure. I think even though she is crucified at the end, burnt at the stake, even after all that, it's still incredibly empowering because she continues on with her fight. She's not broken. And she, even though she has to leave, she's she's made some changes. Well, it's such a message of hope that the one religious guy, the, that very tall <laughs> religious guy that stands in the background of a lot of these shots, that he says that if they send her, if they burn her at the stake and her heart still or her soul still belongs to Satan, then Satan wins and Satan be, you know, goes out and propagates throughout all of the rest of the world. And so they're trying to scourge her and make her see the light of God and all these things. And when they end up burning her at the stake later on, because that's about midway through the film that that happens, when they burn her at the stake later on, she hasn't given her soul to God. She still belongs to the devil. She, basically, she still has her own self-determination, and that infects the world. And I love that 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 the movie ends with the shot of Liberty there leading the people and basically, yeah, she, Jean is basically, if we're to read this right, she's the spirit of Liberty that leads the French people to the revolution and ends up allowing everyone to self-determine themselves. Yeah. That's how I read it as well. I find it incredibly empowering. And like a guy who wrote for our magazine a while back, before I was editor, <laughs> to slip this in. Uh, and one of my first jobs as editor, and this is going to sound really petty now I'm saying it out loud, but basically when I took over as editor, I found this old piece on our website, and I rarely remove any old content, but somebody had accidentally gone to see this film. Uh, some wokester, very young wokester, <laughs> trying to be diplomatic, uh, had gone to see it at a screening and was absolutely outraged by it, completely missed the feminist message, completely missed the empowerment, was absolutely outraged at the rape scene, which, like Heather said, is brutal, but it's in abstract animation, for fuck's sake. And he thought that it was made for titillation because there were naked people and sex in a cartoon. 
my, part of my rage at reading that made me respond by writing my own article, which is that article is one of the things I'm most proud of in all the things that I've, because I was just so inspired to write it, partly because of that guy and partly because it was, I think, just about to get the restoration as well. And I just wanted everyone to see it. Yeah, just really missed the whole point of I just thought I had were you watching the same film? Because it's not there is a lot of sex in it, there is a lot of nudity, there are uncomfortable scenes, there is rape in it, but it is totally not like hentai or you know, it's a decadent film, but it's got such a strong, empowering pro-life, pro-liberty, pro-pro-woman message that I don't know how the hell you could read anything else into that film unless you were knobhead anytime somebody starts complaining about it's problematic oh Heather. this is it's problematic it's problematic it's always it's always some annoying like like not to generalize but it's always like some dude it's always some dude saying like that's sexist and it's like okay thank you for schooling me on feminism sir <laughs> I think there is this kind of like knockback though with these woke do young do tend to be younger. I'm generalizing now as well and it's awful, but they kind of read feminism as being almost entirely devoid of sex. Uh, they have no idea that there are different strands of feminism. And for a lot of feminism, the key empowering point is sex because women, if you look at how we've been traditionally oppressed, it's been through our bodies, through our sexuality, through our ability to reproduce or not reproduce, through our looks and, you know, whether we subscribe to a certain standard. Even our names are changed based on our fucking marital status. And, you know, we're told to be nice girls and not to be the slut and, you know, not to own your sexuality because that's going too far. People will think bad of you. And even now, that's still relevant, probably more relevant than many other things that feminism, modern feminism throws up. And I think that message gets lost. You know, that's how we control women. That's how they're controlling women now. They're taking away women's choice of what to do with their their contraception, with their reproductive choice. They're taking that away. That's how you control women. Men have never traditionally been controlled in that way. And so to see a film like Belladonna with such a strong message of like this sex-positive message, a woman who can find empowerment through allowing her sexuality out and releasing all that guilt. It's just incredible. But this woke fucker sees a pair of tits and just goes, oh, my God, it's objectifying women. Because, of course, you know, we're just infantilized. You know, we don't ever want to have sex because that would be anti-feminist. Just, oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to go into some ranty. You're completely right, though. It's funny because, like, the rape... And this film is portrayed, like, as how rape should be. It is brutal. I mean, it's not sexually graphic. It's done in a very artful way. I'd actually would almost liken it to, uh, you know, there's a scene in Hordorowski's Fan to Elise where you basically realize Elise as a child was molested. But the way Hordorowski does it is very, like, not, not abstract, but kind of surreal. But it's actually almost more powerful because of that. And I think the, you know, the... The sexual violence, the rape in this film, you could say the same thing. 
people look to be offended. I don't understand why it's hard for for the middle to be found because like political correctness when it's extreme is annoying and it's harmful and it makes people very like censorous. Like they, you know, oh no, no, this piece of art hurt me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh, that this image. idea that any woman who's on screen being sexual that she's some tool of oppressed patriarchy that she can't actually own that and choose to be there and you know she can't own that it's just as damaging as the people on the right i find you know you had in the early 70s you had a rise of pinky violence films which were also really misunderstood genre that gets accused of sexism a lot and you know gets written off as porn by outsiders but you had basically in the early 1970s people like Mako Kaji who's a fucking feminist icon if there ever was films like the Prisoner Scorpion series Female Prisoner Scorpion which were rape revenge you had uh, you know these stories of tough women coming out of difficult environments and taking revenge on these oppressive men and they were sexual as well. And I think that's why they often get misinterpreted because there is an aspect of voyeurism and titillation in them. But it's the message that's behind these films. The rape in Female Prisoner Scorpion is grotesque. There's no one is going to be watching that identifying with the rapist. It's uncomfortable. But that's the whole point. It becomes the catalyst for her to become Scorpion, this character who then goes out and, and wreaks revenge on these men that have damaged her. And I think Belladonna's sadness kind of ties into the Pinky Violence movement. And even the song, and I'm sorry, I don't know who did the title song, it's like one of the songs out of Female Prisoner Scorpion. So do these like title songs. I'm glad you brought that up, actually for many reasons, but especially bringing up the music, because the soundtrack to this film is so, so good. I mean, you have like that, you have the title song that you're mentioning, Cat, which is very beautiful and very sort of heavy sounding. And then at one point, it's like it turns into psychedelic rock. You have like this amazing like psych rock, just chaos, and I, which I love. I'm like, yes. And especially once the orgies start happening. I mean, if you're going to have... The orgy music is just the best. <laughs> It really is. This is, I mean, this, you hear that music, you're like, oh yeah, something's going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> like, what did you, actually speaking of that sequence, Mike, what did you think about the orgy scene? I mean, what's not to love, right? <laughs> <laughs> that scene was too much for Andrea. She couldn't handle the dog on woman sex that was happening in there. <laughs> understandable yeah she was that just is- like yeah i'm not a big fan of the bestiality and there was because there were several iterations i think of the orgy scene because there's like the strips of people that are all kind of intertwined with each other and we get that twice i think and that the second time around is where we get like one brief shot dog on woman sex but then we have that black and white sequence again we're talking about totally different animation styles and we've got that black and black and white sequence where 
it's not necessarily people having sex with animals, but it is very animalistic sex. Like the one man, he has a giraffe that grows out from between his legs. There's a guy who has a horse that grows out between his legs. There is, I think, a woman with a turtle shell. There's one woman who gets cut open and all of these eggs come out of her like she's a reptile or something. Just so many different ways. And it's this kind of, again, at one point in the movie, they say Jean was alone, but she knew that she had nature with her and nature keeps her company. So again, it's that whole like mother earth and we're going back to, you know, the actual real world rather than all of these trappings of it. So when it becomes this orgy, the way that we mix animal and human, I thought was just absolutely terrific. Don't forget my favorite part where at one point does it like there's somebody there's a man on all fours and fish fly out of his butt. Yes, yeah. yes. I like the guy, the woodpecker that starts pecking his bum hole as well. Yes, yeah. It's the best. Not that I'm into bestiality. But no. <laughs> oh of, my god! No. But I don't know. It just seems so profane that it becomes extraordinarily amazing. It just people tippy toe around the transgression and they get a bit transgressive. But this just goes all on out. You got like you know this pulsating line of people morphing into creatures. Just I remember the first time I watched that, I was just like. What the hell is this? This is fucking amazing. <laughs> but you kind of try and describe it to people and they, they're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, hey, it's amazing. You know, this guy turns into a giraffe. <laughs> look at you like you're mad. You have to experience it, I think, to really appreciate it. Heather, you mentioned that more pop art sequence. That montage is the one that gets me because it feels so out of place. But then when you think about it in terms of Jean's message is going to live so far beyond her that it makes sense that it's a lot of very future images of like the cheerleaders and the go-go dancers and just wild, wild stuff. And it's so fast. I can't get over how fast that montage is of all of those layers of animation going on. Talk about just absolutely mind blowing. Oh, it's, I mean, like everything else in this film, it's just, it's stunning. And yeah, it does kind of definitely come out like you're like, whoa, okay, now it's like, and it's the only thing that looks probably art style. I, I mean, I don't want to say dated, but it's definitely like the art style kind of switches to a very modern late 60s, early 70s kind of look. And uh, I think I mentioned Peter Max earlier, kind of that style. But then, yeah, like, I love the fact, Mike, that you pointed out that message behind it. Like, this is, and that's to me, that's, that is something that's so beautiful about this film is it does, it does give you hope, even, even after seeing just, you know, a lot of, a lot of despair and a lot of abuse, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's so inspiring. It's like, no, the, the seeds, the, the seeds have been planted, you know, and, uh, we all just need to leave deliciously, though. Yeah, maybe don't, maybe, maybe leave Rover alone in real life. We didn't mention actually some of the main um, animation style is very consciously done in the style of Gustav Clint, who's one of my favorite artists. And he did a lot of art that was based on pagan, like it's part of that whole kind of revival I was talking about. You had a lot of artists who were inspired by romanticism and by old pagan romantics and 
Um, when Jean finally goes to the devil and he holds her, it almost seems like a recreation of Klimt's The Kiss, that painting, The Kiss, where he sort of... Yeah, we got- talked about that on the uh, bad timing episode. Yeah, it's like, it's like very consciously emulating that, which gives it a really clear foundation in this sort of, it's the devil, but it's a pagan devil, which is different to the Christian idea of the devil. I love, cause I love Clint anyway, and some of the most beautiful, pe- I, well, they're paintings really, aren't they? They're not cartoons, they're not animations. They seem heavily inspired by Clint, and I think that's just such a wonderful touch. Because you've got very futuristic pop art in there, and then you've got something very traditional at the same time, and the mixing and matching of those almost seamlessly is just incredible. And I know uh, Kuni Fukai uh, in one of the extras was talking about how there's actual gold leaf on some of those paintings, which gives it a whole different feel to it when you look at it. Which is what Klimt used to do that, didn't he? It's beautiful. It's just some of the, you know, the just when I did my article and I was looking for screen grabs to illustrate it, I ended up with like 200 (laughs) and I could only have like five because everyone was like, you know, that, no, no, that one. And I just, yeah. I love those moments of like the villagers running after Jean or when they're laughing at her or John and the, just the faces and the, the way that the faces overlap one another. And it just becomes this huge, uh, like we're, we're, uh, uh, kind of tilting down on these faces and they're going past us and it just looks fantastic. I love how the villagers, they look kind of almost sort of ghoulish and not quite human. But then like, as they go, as they start to go to Jean, once she gets more power, it's it's all of a sudden they look more human again. They look, you know, even because be- even before the plague, they're, you know, they're drawn so differently from her and John. And even from like the, you know, like the king's wife, who, by the way, I love how she's illustrated. She looks like she should be in the holy mountain. I know, I was going to say, she's got, she looks like some sort of high priestess thing. Like some evil kind of, she's brilliant, but all the, all the, uh, barren people are great because they just all look so sinister. And then the villagers, they're, they're so good and they're all, di- and there's no like, no one cares about, um, perspective in this because everyone's like completely different heights and <laughs> madness. They're like a giant person. And <laughs> And and then the villagers are great as well. And the only and then you've got Jean, who's kind of like the only really beautiful looking person in it to start with. He's drawn completely differently. It's, it's great. Oh, it's so it's so good. And Mike, you mentioned the page. It's funny. I actually, when I first watched this, I thought the page was the woman <laughs> until 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 like he goes to Jean. And he's like, I'm in love with the queen, but she'll never love me because of my status. Which, of course, Jean has the best response. Who cares about status? What a great anti-authoritarian response. I'm like, yes, girl. I didn't realize that status was given to you by God and that to transcend status was a sin. And then the way that the Baron later on is just like, hey, listen, 
I'll change you to nobility. I'll change you to being second only to me. You know, it's just like, wow. Okay. Cause he does have that power, quote unquote, of God. And it, like I said, I didn't realize that that was you're, you're born into that class. You stay that class forever, like the Hindu caste system. And, and I didn't realize that that was a thing in Europe. Yeah, in the feudal times, they really, and we talked about this on Daughters of Darkness, if you were born a serf, you stayed a serf. And the people in power saw themselves as, because a lot of their power came from their affiliation to the church as well, was you were akin to God. and But it really is all to do with birthright. It was all to do with birthright. And once you were there, that was it. And so to have Jean, who's a surf woman, transcend that is an incredibly powerful thing because she escapes this sort of class oppression and, you know, through her, through her own power, which is something that would have never have happened then, which is why Michelet was looking at paganism as a form of rebellion for these people. The, the serfs because they had no power this was the only thing that they had that that was their own and so he saw that as something that was empowering to them and that the church were he, the way he's writing it's like the church of the oppressors and you know the paganism is like the the freeing thing and this the film really captures that i think that spirit if you can take one thing away from that book with all its higgledy pickle details it's that you know go worship the devil and you know fuck your masters because <laughs> <laughs> that's that was kind of what he was talking about and women and he saw women uh, he had this like wonderful view of women that he saw them as innately he was probably quite naive, but he saw women as innately uh, innocent and capable of healing. And you see some of that in the film that comes from Michelet. He saw women as, as sort of, in a way, morally purer than men because of their capability to heal. And, you know, they weren't so corrupt. And so some of that comes up in the Gene character. I guess the sexuality thing, though, is more to do with the film. I'm talking about Misha. It's more. It's more to do with Belladonna of Sadness, the whole orgies and everything. They they don't come up in Misha. That strikes me of of like the memory of reading like about a uh, voodoo because I know uh, I know in the past you know when when people were bringing slaves over, particularly like New Orleans and and the South, they uh, they wouldn't let they outlawed them gathering basically, because they didn't want them practicing the religion, because especially after the slave revolt, and I believe Haiti, there was this fear of like, oh, if we, you know, if we let, if we let them, you know, practice their religion, they're going to get power, and they're going to rebel against us. And so it's fascinating, like anything that's apparently outside of the Judeo-Christian, which is funny, because voodoo has elements of Catholicism. But, uh, but part of that was also to help kind of mask the original African religious beliefs that were being intertwined with it. Well, if you look at it, though, in the power that women have in those communities, and it was the same with paganism, Christianity came over and it wiped out paganism and sort of absorbed some of the best things like the parties. And But then, you know, anyone who was now not converting to Christianity was an enemy of the state. And if you look at 
sort of, you know, the old ways. The people that had power were the wise women. They were the healers. They were the doctors. You know, they were there when people were born. They were the people that, you know, so they had some cultural capital. And if you look at our society today, an older woman is basically one of the lowest figures you can get on the chain of things. And that was all to do with Christianity. They took away women's power in that. And then, of course, Malleus Maleficarum comes along, you know, the witch-finding book. And if you look at all the things that make woman a woman a witch in that, it's women that speak out, you know, women that want power, women that own things, women that have sex. It's it's all to do with taking this power away. And anything like that, any form of independence, and you're a witch, so you need to burn. And that was Christianity that, that did that, and it took that power away. Same with voodoo. Look at the wise women in voodoo. They have a lot of cultural capital, and so, you know, it's, it's threatening, I guess, to a, to a sort of Christian-based thing for women to have power in that. And especially because you think about it in our culture, like if you're not outside of people that are pagan, like the term crone is used kind of de- like derisively towards older women, like all oh, this old crone. But in certain pagan communities, the crone is like that is a that's a that's a something to be celebrated. Like, oh, this is this is a woman that can teach us. She's wise. She's powerful. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Kirsten Costello is a model. She has the face people want. She has the look people desire. But now, something else wants her look. Something wants her face. Something not human. Night Waves. The debut novel from David Irons is a new chapter in terror. Night Waves, the novel. From Cosmic Egg, an imprint of John Hunt Publications. Available now at all good bookshops. Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the Traumatic Cinematic Show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it, and nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com, because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on traumaticcinematic.podomatic.com. I'm on the internet. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. 
the show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Belladonna of Sadness. So, Kat, I know you already mentioned um, some of the other films that were out around this time. I was doing a little research as far as animated films that came out in the 60s versus animated films that came out in the 70s. And I think we all know uh, here and also the audience that the 70s were a pretty dark time for a lot of animation studios, especially the big one, Disney. And it kind of opened a door for a lot of underground animation to come in. So there are some really interesting animated films that are happening in the late 60s, early 70s. And I know that Yamamoto is saying that they were kind of trying to outdo Yellow Submarine when it came to this movie, and also that they were influenced by Fantastic Planet. So, yeah, those were two just incredible animated films. I think I'm going to cover Yellow Submarine one of these days on the show. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though. It is very fantastic. Different message, but it's very fantastic planet in the, in its spirit. Maybe not its style, but its spirit. And Heather, you brought up Bakshi earlier. I think this was right around the time that Fritz the Cat was coming out as well. It, it was, yeah. And thank, thank God for you know Bakshi because I was I was trying to think when I was working on notes for this about other sort of adult themed like animated films from the, the states. And Bakshi was like the only one I could think of that actually did good stuff because the other ones like what was? Did you guys ever see that horrible movie? Once is it Once Upon a Lady? No. It's like a like, it's yeah. a riff on like fairy tales, and they, they actually got like Frank Welker does some of the voices, and Frank Welker, of course, voice, he like, does everything. Yeah, and uh, granted, you do get to see Frank Welker yell "suck it, you harlot bitch," which is <laughs> kind of amazing. <laughs> but it's it is not right, and it has these like live action sequences where they have Mother Goose on trial, and Mother Goose is played by. Uh, I cannot remember the actor's name. He's the one that played Otis, the town drunk, on Andy Griffith and Drag. Oh, wow. I'm actually making this movie sound good now. And trust <laughs> yeah, me, we're going to go watch it now. <laughs> Don't do it. And then we'll be it like, that was horrible, right. Heather. <laughs> oh, the sex scenes are completely nightmarish. It is not delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up uh, uh, fairy tales because I totally meant to uh, talk about that earlier. We've talked a lot about fairy tales on the projection booth before and just 
how they're used and how people bounce against them. And there's such a fairy tale aspect to Belladonna of Sadness, especially, I mean, it begins literally with Once Upon a Time, but the whole idea of the spinning wheel, and that's where the devil comes from, is when she pricks her finger on the needle on the spinning wheel. And it's just like, okay, yeah, I mean, of course, Sleeping Beauty comes to mind, but I'm sure that that's happened in other fairy tales as well, that that's the way that we enter into this is through blood. And I just really appreciated that they had these fairy tale elements to Belladonna of Sadness as well. I love it. We talk, Did we talk about it on Daughters of Darkness, how they were kind of changing the fairy tale in the 70s as well, especially in Czech film, things like Jacques Demi, uh, Donkey Skin and things like that. It was they were changing the fairy tale to make it more feminist and, you know, subver- using it as a tool of subversion. I really love that period in the fairy tale, like that 70s period where they're kind of suddenly realising the fairy tale's got all these different possibilities and can mean different things. Yeah, it definitely has that aspect. Yeah, the Czech version of uh, The Little Mermaid, we've talked about that on the show before. And then, Heather, we talked about uh, the Sleeping Beauty myth when it comes to um, Some Call It Loving as well. Oh, yes. I was thinking of that one and also uh, Lamora, the oh, child's yes. tale, the supernatural. Yes, another Lamora one. Ex- oh, so exquisite. You know, I need to see more of the Czech stuff. You guys are mentioning these films. I'm like, God, I need to see them. It kind um, of taps into more of a kind of Czech or Eastern European tradition, though, because when it comes to animation... In Czechoslovakia especially, with people like Carol Zeman, they have much more of a long-standing tradition of animation being used for adults and animation being used as a sort of experimental avant-garde art device. That's where Borovček started, and that's why I see Borovček in this film. You know, because he was... Yeah, there was. It, they, they seem to have more of that than we have... I mean, I couldn't... Britain has virtually nothing. <laughs> and America has always been very traditional with the animation until we get to the 70s. I remember Fritz the Cat when I was a kid. We used to go to the video shop and I'd look at the covers. Fritz the Cat just completely, because it had a very rude stills on the back cover. I remember seeing that as a little kid and just thinking, what have I seen? That was the first movie I was ever turned away from seeing. Uh, I was literally an infant in the back seat of my parents' car, and they would not let them go see it at the drive-in because I was a child and this was rated X. <laughs> oh my <laughs> we god! Just the movie came out in 1972. Nice... I was born that year. <laughs> we just want to take him to the nice cartoon. Yeah, I was sullied by that cover of Fritz. I didn't see it till years later, but it always stuck with me, you know, uh, picking it up and just being really kind of like, I hope my mother hasn't seen me looking at this. (laughs) But also curious. My faux granddaughter was asking the other day to see uh, Alice in Wonderland, and I was just like, oh my god, what happens if I actually have Jan Svankmeyer's version of Alice on my Plex? Talk about being scarred for life. Oh, yeah, here you go. Here's Alice in Wonderland. Fuck you. Oh, so good, though. So good. But it is totally, Belladonna's totally in that sort. There's this wonderful Czech cartoon about Bathory. And I, I don't know if it's just called Countess Bathory. 
and it came out in the early 80s where basically it's a very simplistic animation style but it's the story of Bathory and it's got like a pagan theme to it and she gives away her heart to this man in a spell and she becomes evil but she's like this pagan figure in it and it's incredible it's nowhere near as lush and as decadent as belladonna visual it's it's like a very very simple almost childlike animation style but really dark that's another one that kind of fits into that although it's not as well known fits into this sort of little group i should probably say that this was the third of what some people call the what is it animago trilogy or some people call it like the Mushi trilogy because there were two other films that came before this. And I watched parts of each of those, but I have to say that Belladonna really just stands out as being so completely different than those other films. And I, I mean, whatever they were impressive. I mean, full length animation is always impressive, but they did not take me the way that Belladonna did. No, I, I haven't seen them actually since the first time I saw Belladonna and I was going to rewatch them for this show, but I, t- this is going to sound really unfair. They didn't make that much of an impression on me to be that honest. And you know, there may have been, I should go back and revisit them, but they just, I don't know. They don't stand out in my mind. And I remember enjoying them, but then when I got to Belladonna, it was just like, whoa, like the the difference in the start because they're more traditional. They're kind of sexy, but they're more traditional. It took me a long time to find a non-Italian version of uh, was it One Thousand and One Arabian Nights. I don't know. I think I might have one of them. I might have watched without subs now. I'm, um, I got them from a place I'm not sure we're allowed to speak about. <laughs> so I'll leave it nameless yeah they just i don't know they don't it sounds awful someone's probably gonna go oh my god they're amazing but i don't remember them actually leaving that much of a i might have even just skimmed through them for (laughs) i've got a habit of doing that they just didn't live up to belladonna they just did not live up to it at all i think oh that was like a that was like a very conscious thing though wasn't it on behalf of the director didn't they like give him a go and then he was just getting more and more outrageous just wanted to some freedom in what he was doing and and kind of digress from what they wanted him to do it seems like the company that he was working for was pretty much starting to go out of business around this time and they just didn't give a fuck as what the impression was that i got from these interviews so it's just kind of like well we're going out so going out on a bank so what i do remember from the other ones was they looked more in the style that i imagine belladonna was gonna look if that makes sense more in what i'd associate with that sort of japanese animated style right because ichi yamamoto i mean if memory serves he was behind kimba the white lion and astro boy two of like the biggest anime hits that crossed over to the United States and probably over to Britain as well. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, those are what I think of when I think of anime and Belladonna of Sadness is not that whatsoever. (laughs) We do not get the big eyes. We don't get, I mean, we do get different hair colors and stuff, but, and, and there's one part where I think a 
bird gets decapitated and we have a noise that sounds like it's right out of every anime movie that I've ever seen or anime cartoon <laughs> that swing and I'm just like okay that comes out of place but but otherwise it's not what you expect when you say anime no whereas the other two are more traditional I don't want to put people off them I could just be talking out my backside and just you know I just they didn't stay with me but then I think It'd be very hard to compete with something like Belladonna or Sadness. Like, even things outside of that canon, outside of Japanese animation, when you start comparing it to other films about witchcraft, it kind of, you know, just stands out against everything if you start comparing them. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. One creature caught. Caught in a place he cannot stir from in the dark. Alone, outnumbered hundreds to one, nothing to live for but his memories, nothing to live with but his gadgets, his cars, his guns, gimmicks. And yet the whole family can't bring him down out of that, that monkey paradise, brother. Oh, my God. In a world gone mad. Our fellow countrymen are dying. In the city of Los Angeles. Hospitals have begun to crack under the strain. In the aftermath of biological Armageddon. Now the question is survival. A ruthless band of outlaws rules the night. But one man rules the day. The Omega Man. He's a man clinging to the life he once led. You are the refuse of the past. You're full of crap. A man hell-bent on eliminating the creatures that stalk him. We were chosen for just this work. You're barbarians. A man who thinks he's the last person on Earth. There's never a cop around when you need one. Until the day he meets her. Up against the wall, you mother. Now he's discovered something the whole world needs. There was a vaccine, just an experimental batch. He could save the world. And he'll stop at nothing to rescue humanity. Throw away those Halloween costumes and get these people organized, damn it. Academy Award winner Charlton has are you fellas really, really internal revenue service? Anthony Zerby. Take him to the little room. And Rosalind Cash. You got any more questions about here? In a film from the director of Mosquito Squadron. They're not scary like that. The Omega Man. He's not the last man on Earth, but he's mankind's last hope. Another day, another dollar. That's right, we're kicking off a full month of sci-fi films with a look at the Omega Man. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Kat. Heather, what is the latest with you, ma'am? The first part of my article mini-series on the classic art rock band The Tubes uh, is up and live over at diabolikemagazine.com. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, also, speaking of series and excitement, the second part of my ongoing look at the career of the late, great Charles Rocket, uh, entitled The Rocket Files, is up at my website, mondoheather.com. And this particular episode looks at the Albert Pion film, Down Twisted. Now, Heather, I just want to clarify for people that are listening, you are not the same person as Sam Deegan. <laughs> oh, I know. Sam, Sam and I are not the same person. Sam is fabulous, and she's also a redhead, but that's, you know, we, we are two individuals. Now, I noticed that in the Daughters of Darkness episode, all the comments. I say anything. <laughs> like, I, Lee, Lee Gambit was like, I fucked them. And I'm like, Lee, that's not, I'm not Sam. <laughs> And I think he just like responded with the little laughing emoji. Oh my god! <laughs> so, 
a lot of people are like, oh, I love, I know, it's like, guys, that's, it's, you know. I guess maybe because it was Daughters of Darkness, which is also the name of your guys' podcast, as far as Sam and Kat, but then you two, Heather and Kat, you are the Hell's Bells, and neither do Twain shall meet, yeah. Which is appropriate for Belladonna, the Hell's Bells. Exactly. Talk about the joys of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, Sam is fabulous, and I highly encourage everybody to listen to the Daughters of Darkness podcast with her and Kat, because it's fantastic. But, uh, But yes, we are, we are not the same person. And Kat, how is the busiest lady on the British Isle these days? Oh, God. Well, I, I do want to say, Heather's Tube's article, actually, please check that out because it's brilliant. I love it when Heather gets a little inspired seasons on. And I said this on the last episode, but I am nearly finished editing the he- next ed- episode of House Mouse. <laughs> I swear. I'm not like Mike, he does like one a day. I'm there like two months editing. <laughs> so, yes, that's coming soon. I'm really excited because, as I said on the last uh, projection booth, we, we were experimenting with format on that one. Um, and what else? Oh, I just did liner notes for the old boy set that Arrow were doing. They're bringing out the big swanky version of that with a poster and three discs and whatnot. And I also did a couple of essays for some amicus films for Second Sight, which was fun because I took a completely different route on those to the classic horror people. So I'm just waiting for the brands to come in on that one. And that's about it. But yeah, hopefully by the time this airs, our Hell's Bow should be ready as well. Thanks again, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.